Good morning. Glad you've come to join us this morning here at Life Center North. I'd like to start this morning by telling a story about two very religious men. My ministry uh, uh, is as a missionary. I travel around the world and equip national leaders in a number of different places. And about 10 years ago, my travels took me to the country of India. And the first man that I met was a, a well-known Christian leader, going to call him Dr. Santosh. And he leads a ministry among the poorest of the poor. And in order to get acquainted with him, I sat across from him at his desk, and I said, tell me about yourself and about the work that you do for Christ. And so he handed me this photo album, and he said, take a look at these photos. He was very, very proud of this photo album. And so I looked at the first page, and there is the denominational headquarters of his ministry, and in the picture is the cornerstone, and very prominently in the photo is Dr. Santosh, and he's standing there with his hands like this, standing erect and tall with a great big smile on his face. And on the cornerstone, it says, dedicated to the glory of God by Dr. Santosh, such and such a date. I flipped the page. It's a local church run by one of his pastors. And the only people in the picture are the pastors kind of off in the background. And right there in the middle, again, is Dr. Santosh. And the cornerstone again, and it says, dedicated to the glory of God by Dr. Santosh. And then the Women's Vocational Training Center. There he is again. Uh, All sorts of different facilities. I suppose that if there was a latrine that could have been dedicated to the honor of Dr. Santosh, it would have been in one of the photos. And then I met another Indian leader just a few months later. His name is Professor B.E. Vijayam. A very, very godly man. Also, very religious, very... uh, 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 strong looking on the outside. And as I met him, I said, please help me get acquainted with you and your ministry. I guess it's an Indian thing. He also handed me a photo album. The first album that he hands me, I look at that first picture, and there is a photo of his training center, and there's a great big group of people whom he has trained from all over South Asia, Nepal and Bangladesh and India, And he's way off in the background with his wife, Mary. I turn the page. There's another picture of another training group that he has. And he's not even in the picture. Page after page after page. It was really obvious that his life was not about him. It was about the glory of God and promoting leaders and helping young men and women to serve Christ faithfully. Very, very interesting. Both men are deeply religious. Both men look really good on the outside. But I discovered from the stories of those two men that it's what's inside that really counts. Now, this morning, we're going to get back into our series in the Gospel of John, and we're going to be in John chapter 3 this morning. And in this story, we find the tales of two men. In religious terms, one looks really, really spiritual on the outside. His name is Nicodemus. And the other guy looks like some kind of Harley guy, if Harleys had been around 2,000 years ago. And his name is John the Baptist. So as we look at the outsides of these men and the insides of their lives, and more important, when we see what Jesus has to say about us and them, we'll discover together that as far as God is concerned, it's what's inside that really counts. 
So let's start this morning with looking at Nicodemus. And as we look at Nicodemus, the term arises, there's a danger of familiarity. There's a danger in getting too familiar with God. So we'll begin this morning by reading the first half of John 3, in which the story of Nicodemus encounters Jesus. So I'm going to read this passage aloud, and I'm going to read a couple of long sections of narrative or long sections of the story, and just follow along with me as I read. Verse 1, now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish, Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Well, how can someone be born when they're old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you don't understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Now, when we look at this passage, we learn at least three things about the man Nicodemus. First of all, this passage tells us very clearly that Nicodemus was a Pharisee and also a member of the Sanhedrin, which was the highest Jewish court in the time of Christ. That's in verse 1. Now, the Pharisees were religious conservatives. They were always quoting Moses and always quoting the Old Testament law. And when you look at the Pharisees in the New Testament, through the encounters that they have with Jesus, you'll discover that they were one-third holy men and two-thirds politicians. The Gospels don't give us a very flattering portrayal of Pharisees, including Nicodemus. There was no group of people... Surprisingly, there's no group of people that gave Jesus a more difficult time or sought to trap him, and ultimately, the Pharisees were the ones who arranged for the execution, the crucifixion of Jesus. Nicodemus is one of these guys. The second thing we learned from the passage is that Nicodemus was 
very highly educated in Jewish law and traditions and the scripture. If you look back at verse 10, you'll see that Jesus calls him the teacher of Israel. He is the most prominent, most educated, most powerful teacher of Old Testament law in the days of Jesus. But in spite of being so highly educated and in spite of looking so good on the outside and in spite of having all of these tremendous qualifications and resume, Nicodemus was spiritually dull. About ten words into Jesus' explanation of what it really means to know God, Nicodemus was completely lost. Nick was clueless about being born again, about the mysterious work of the Holy Spirit, and about Jesus' true identity as the Messiah that the Old Testament prophesied about. He didn't get it. He was spiritually dull. Now, not only was he a Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin, not only was he spiritually dull, but there's one positive thing about Nicodemus that you might miss in the text. It's really clear that Nicodemus is a humble and hungry man. Nicodemus took a huge, ginormous risk of coming to Jesus even at night Because the Pharisees, all of his colleagues, had already determined that if anyone, especially among their elite group, if anyone had ever decided to follow Jesus, they would be excommunicated and shamed beyond belief. Nicodemus came to Jesus at night at the risk of losing his job, at the risk of losing his identity, at the risk of being an outcast in all the places where he was accepted. Now, with those two bad things and this one good thing, there might be one word that could sum up what Nicodemus' problem was. And his problem is the problem that almost all of us who have known Christ for a while face. And that one word is familiarity. Familiarity is knowing something or someone so well that the meaning And the meaningfulness of those things and those relationships get lost. This is why 10-year-old marriages can get stale and boring. Husbands and wives get too familiar with their relationship and with one another. This is why we don't get very upset when we spill our latte on the carpet of our 1989 Buick LeSabre. Now, if that was a brand new car, you'd be really upset. Before the coffee dried, you'd have carpet cleaner out there trying to fix the problem. But you know what? I've got dents and dings, and it's a little bit torn up inside my LeSabre, and it just doesn't matter that much. That's familiarity. Familiarity is why we take our good but not too exciting long-standing job for granted. We go to work Monday, we punch in, we punch out at the end of the day. Day after day, week after week, we just take our job for granted. That's familiarity. And familiarity is even how our relationship with an amazing, extraordinary God can become not so amazing and way too ordinary. Now, if you've known Jesus for more than five years, or if you're raised in a Christian family, or especially if you're like me and you have a leadership role in the church, 
you run an extremely high risk of becoming overly familiar with God. So let me just give you a simple little test. This isn't a trick, okay? In this passage, we just read the most well-known verse in the Bible. In fact, I bet 80% of this group could quote it, John 3.16. So I'd like you to just follow along with me, okay? John 3.16, let's quote it together. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Right? Good job. But here's the irony. Jesus quotes the most well-known verse in the Bible to a guy who's overly familiar, and it didn't stir up anything in him. When you quoted John 3.16, like I oftentimes do, what does it stir up in you? Does it stir up amazement? Does it stir up wonder? Does it stir up fresh and vibrant worship? Or is it, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, like my little kid, you know, did when he first learned the verse and he didn't even know why it was so amazing. That's the irony. We can become just like Nicodemus if we've known Jesus too long and we end up taking him for granted. That's what Nicodemus did with God, and that can so easily happen to us. What we replace Jesus with when we're too familiar with God, I could come up with a long list, but let me just suggest two or three. First of all, we become too comfortable, way too comfortable with God. Daily times with God, if they even happen, I miss a few myself. Daily times with God, more of a habit than a heart-to-heart living encounter with Abba Father, with the Lord Jesus Christ, and with the overwhelming, powerful Holy Spirit. Risk-taking goes out the window. Intimacy is gone. We become too comfortable. People who are too familiar with God can also just be people who are way, way, way too busy. This is probably the biggest shot over my bow. I get so busy doing things for God or so busy with life that I don't even pay attention to cultivating the wellspring of life, the presence of Christ in my life, the the nagging of the Holy Spirit to say, come to me, let me refresh you, let me make you new and vibrant today. We we let busyness create an atmosphere of, of familiarity in our life. And then finally, we just become too dull, just like Nicodemus. That childlike wonder about life, about relationships, about creation, it's lost. It's gone. It seems like a distant memory. It's way in the rear view, way back in the rear view mirror of our lives. Dullness, comfortability, busyness, all of these things can interfere. All of these things make us too familiar with God. There's one more thing from this first story in John 3 that we need to pay attention to about Nicodemus. Did you happen to notice how blunt Jesus was with him? How kind of almost mean he was with him? Jesus didn't care that he was the teacher of Israel. In fact, three times Jesus begged Nicodemus. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, Nicodemus, I want you to get the point. I'm glad you've come at night, 
but you're missing it. Let me try this again. I want to tell you. He repeats it three times. He also says, you're the teacher of Israel. You're the smartest guy out of all God's people in communicating God's word, and you don't get it? Wow, he's really blunt. Why was he so blunt? Well, it's because Jesus knows that when people become too familiar with him, it it requires some kind of spiritual and emotional dynamite to help us see how far we've drifted from intimacy with God. That's why he's blunt. But he wasn't only blunt with Nicodemus. There's a lot of bluntness in the New Testament for people who become too familiar with God. For example, in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus speaks to seven churches. It's his personal summary statement and challenges to the churches of the Revelation. You know, Smyrna, Pergamum, Philadelphia, Thyatira, Laodicea, etc., etc. The first church he addresses in Revelation 2 is the church of Ephesus. Now, the church of Ephesus was the biggest powerhouse church in all the New Testament, even more powerful and more well-known than the church in Jerusalem. Uh, if, I just encourage you sometime, go to Acts 19 and see how this church started out. There's, there's amazing miracles that are taking place. The demons are being cast out of hundreds and hundreds of people. Thousands of people in the city of Ephesus, upon hearing the gospel, came. And they publicly repented of their evil. They even had a huge book-burning ceremony. Not a religious ceremony, but there's a lot of uh, false worship and idol worship and demon worship. They throw They threw the books into a big bonfire, costing millions of dollars. But perhaps most significant of all in Acts 19 is that the church of Ephesus was, was, the, was the founding place of an incredible church planting movement that invaded all of Asia Minor. In fact, in Acts 19, it says, through Ephesus, through the mentoring ministry of the Apostle Paul, every person in Asia Minor heard the word of the Lord, and at least six new churches were planted. They started off so well. That was in about 55 A.D., Now, in Revelation 2, Jesus writes to them 35 years later, and you talk about a church who's too familiar with God. Their sense of awe had disappeared. They had lost their passion for Christ. They had become way too familiar and really, really proud of who they were. So 35 years after they first believed, in 90 AD, Jesus himself has to speak with them very, very bluntly. And this is what he says. You Ephesians... I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. Ouch. (laughs) I read that and I say, where's my first love? Where's my passion for Christ? Where is that sense of awesomeness in my life that draws me and captivates me to want more and more and more of Jesus? So if you're wondering if I've been reading your mail, I haven't. I've been busy enough reading my own, thanks very much. Now, you know what? I'm not saying all this stuff to make people feel guilty because I know, in fact, that when I talk, when God talks with me this way, My first response is, Jesus, I want more of you. 
Jesus, I want to recapture that intimacy with you. None of us want or intend for familiarity to happen. Somehow, though, it happens to most of us. Many of us aren't happy with our ordinariness. We long for him. We hunger for him, just like Nicodemus did. So how can we change? How can we work our way out of being high-centered on the ruts of familiarity with God? Well, the good news, that's what the second half of John chapter 3 is about. So let's continue with our second and last point this morning. John the Baptist, the dynamic of humility. Nicodemus faced the danger of familiarity. John the Baptist dealt with familiarity through the power, through the dynamic of humility. So we started this morning by reading the first half of John 3 about Nicodemus. Let's finish up our time together this morning by looking at the second character, someone who could have easily become way too familiar with God, but somehow he didn't, and it had nothing to do with his clothes. His name was John the Baptist. So follow along with me, beginning in John 3.22. The story picks up again. After this, that's after Jesus had encountered Nicodemus, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he's baptizing and everyone's going to him. So let's just pause for a moment and consider what's happening. John the Baptist was the most powerful, dynamic, spiritual leader of his day. He had quite a following. In fact, everyone was coming to him. Everyone wanted to see him. Everyone was repenting. Everyone wanted to be baptized. There was no one like him. There, there was no one like him. Look at, what, look at what the Gospel of Mark says about him. It says, The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. John, uh, pardon me, Mark 1, 5 through 6. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey, a diet I don't suggest. So here's John being told by his followers, who sense that his master's popularity is in deep decline. And what does John the Baptist tell them? He says, okay, guys, you're, you're absolutely right. I've really missed this. Let's start a marketing campaign with billboards and on the Internet. Wave the flag for JohnTheBaptist.com. No, he doesn't do that. He does the exact opposite. He's about to say in the verses that we're going to read now, do you guys even have a clue as to whom we're dealing with, why everyone's going over to him and why everyone is leaving us? Let's pick it up again in verse 27. To this John replied, This is a beautiful passage. A person can receive only what's given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I'm not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it's now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who is from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but 
no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives, this, gives him the spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Did you catch everything John says in this passage? He goes into this lengthy comparison between him and Jesus, and every time Jesus wins. Every time Jesus is greater. Let me just review those briefly as we wrap up. John the Baptist says, Jesus is the promised Messiah. I'm only the one who prepared for him to come. Jesus is the groom of the bride who is the church. And the church, the bride belongs to him. I'm only the best man. He is from heaven, and he is over everyone and everything. I'm only from the earth. He's creator. I'm created. He was sent by the Father himself and speaks the very words of God. I don't. He possesses the Holy Spirit without limit. I don't. His Father is God who loves him and who has given him authority over everything. Unlike me. And then John gives us his bottom line about who Jesus is and how he compares. He says, he, Jesus, must increase. I, John, must decrease. That is the dynamic of humility. That is what helps us to overcome familiarity. Now, a couple of years ago, our son Peter married his college sweetheart, Sally. Um, Here's a picture from that happy day. Good-looking family, huh? I do not have three daughters, okay? Peggy is on my left, on your right. She's beautiful. Always has been, always will be. But anyway, this is, the, this is a picture of Peter and Sally's wedding day. Now, uh, Eric is over there on the right, and our daughter Michelle is in between them. Eric's the best man. Now, that was one of the most fabulous, joyful days probably the most joyful, fabulous day in our family's history. Uh, you know the story in the Old Testament about, about David dancing with all of his might when the Ark of the Covenant came into Jerusalem? That's who Peter was on his wedding day. Peter was dancing like a crazy fool. Keep the picture up there. He's dancing like a crazy fool. Sweat is pouring off Peter's face as he's dancing. This is after they're married, okay? He was all, you know, he was sweating for different reasons before he said, I do. But it was just an incredible, God-filled, joyful, uh, exuberant day. God was there. It was so cool. Now, Eric was the best man. And when it came time for Eric to toast his brother and his new sister-in-law, Eric took the mic and told everyone these things. Eric said, you know what? I was an award-winning student at the University of Washington. And then Eric started talking about all of his other accomplishments. And then Eric started telling jokes to show how funny he was and how much better he was than his brother. No, he didn't do that. He didn't do any of that stuff. Because that's not what the best man does, is it? Eric told everyone instead how amazing his brother was. Eric stood up in front of everyone and he said, my brother can do anything. It takes him a while to get it, but he never stops until he finishes the job. 
whether it's school, whether it's him in his army responsibilities, whether it's him on a hobby like rock climbing or mountain climbing. My brother is amazing. He never quits. My brother, I respect him so much because he's an amazing man. That's what the best man is supposed to do, right? Supposed to extol the virtues of the group. And that's exactly what John the Baptist did with Jesus. That's exactly how he spoke of Jesus. Now, as we wrap up, let's look at one more statement about John the Baptist in case you're struggling with guilt, okay? This one coming from Jesus himself. Jesus said this in Matthew eleven eleven. To us, he's saying, I tell you the truth. He said it three times to Nicodemus. Now he's saying it once to us. I tell you the truth. Of all who have ever lived, none is greater than John the Baptist. But now catch this. Yet even the least person in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he is. Greater than he is. Does that make you feel a little bit better? Because you might be thinking, I could never look like John the Baptist, which is probably a good idea. Okay? But I can never be as godly or dynamic or as dedicated as him. Well, the good news is you don't have to be John. You can just be you. All you have to do is to humble yourself like John did. All you have to do is make sure that on a daily basis that you and your desires and your will decrease and that Jesus increases in your life. Take time to be amazed by him daily by reading the Gospels. I'm doing that now. That's my project this year, to immerse myself in the Gospels and to get reacquainted and recaptivated by how amazing Jesus is. Make sure that in your relationships that you hang out with at least one or two people who are absolutely like John the Baptist, who are amazing, whose personalities are captivating because they have learned the secret of humility, the dynamic of humility, and they're rejecting the danger of familiarity. Or slow down and intentionally take time to be amazed by creation. Peggy and I were out in our yard yesterday. I just looked at this really ugly, really sharp weed, and yet when you look at that thing, it's an amazing creation of God. And if it's true about weeds, imagine all the other stuff that we're missing if we're too familiar. Seek God out. Ask him to sweep you off your feet again. Keep learning. Keep growing. Keep pursuing. Keep seeking Jesus out. And you know what? When you do that, he will sweep you off your feet again. He will very over, quickly overwhelm our overly familiar relationships with him. Now, most of us who are here today have known Jesus and probably known Jesus for a while. I want to ask you a question. Do you find yourself to be more like Nicodemus? Or are you more like John the Baptist? And be honest with yourself. And if you're here today and you're a religious person and you're like Nicodemus, you're seeking Jesus out. And you hear God tugging on your heart and saying, I brought you here this morning for a reason. I brought you here because you, like Nicodemus, are seeking me out and I want to meet you. You know, it was 39 years ago today, on a Sunday, that God did that exact thing in my heart. I came and I listened to someone share the word of God like I'm sharing with you today. 
And I went home that night and I said, Jesus, if you're real, if you're as real as I think you are, when I wake up in the morning, would you make my first thought a thought of you? And when I woke up at 6 o'clock on Monday morning, May 6th, 1974, Jesus came into my heart. And if you don't know Jesus, he can come into your heart today too. And the change will be amazing. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper now. And only those who know Jesus can come to the table. And if you don't know Jesus, I just want, before we even do this, this could be your first communion. Your first communion with Jesus. And so, if you don't know Jesus, let me just pray for you now. And in fact, as you, everyone bows their heads and closes their eyes. If you're here this morning and Jesus is tugging on your heart and you know that you don't know him, just follow with me in this little prayer. Jesus, you're amazing. And I want you in my life. I don't want to depend on me anymore. I want to trust you completely with everything. Please forgive my sins. Please enter into my life and make me new. I trade my old, tired life for the eternal life that you promised to give me. Because you so love me that you came as God's only son. And believing in you, I now claim the eternal life that you promise and offer to me and to all those who respond. In Jesus' name, amen.